the following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is mindfulness-based registered dietitian and yoga teacher, Andrea Lieberstein, author of Mindful author of Well-Nourished, Mindful Practices to Heal Your Relationship with Food, Feed Your Whole Self, and End Overeating. What if we were living a life where we felt well-nourished physically, emotionally, psychologically, intellectually, socially, spiritually, and creatively? We tend to think of food as nourishment for the body only, but we often overlook nourishing the other dimensions of our lives. Internationally known teacher, trainer, and coach, Andrea Lieberstein offers tools and practices so you no longer have to turn towards food to find what you are seeking. She's earned degrees from Stanford and UC Berkeley and is featured in Women's Watch, Talk, Healthy Today, and NPR. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Andrea. Thank you. Nice to be here, Catherine. So, okay, I guess the question is, or the question that you ask and the question you ask in your book are, are we well-nourished? And when you're talking about being well-nourished, it's not just your body, but your whole self. So what exactly does that mean for us in practical terms? Okay. <laughs> well, in yeah, so in, in practical terms, you know, really, it's interesting how this book came about because what I'll say is, you know, I, I work with a lot of people that um, are looking for food um, for their main source of comfort and nourishment and pleasure. Um, part of that, and there's so many reasons why, you know, why people come to that. So it might be childhood patterns. It might be... Um, lifestyle, but what I see a lot of is that, you know, we're so busy, (laughs) we're all so busy, and we really become more these human doings than beings, and we're we're working, we're balancing responsibilities, getting things done, and um, family, school, whatever it is, and most of the day is, you know, it's just spent kind of producing, doing, and not nourishing ourselves in many, many ways, except um, for maybe that quick food break. (laughs) And then we're often not even fully present for the meal or the snack that we're eating and really enjoying it and letting it nourish us, And which we we find through research, actually, when we're more present, when we have more pleasure from the food, when we're more relaxed, we're, we're actually digesting it better and getting more nutrition from it as well as it being more satisfying. Um, so, so when I Andrea, work with so people, what you're saying, we, yeah. I'm just going to interrupt a minute. So what you're saying sure. is that we use, uh, we use food to nourish or we think we're using it to 
nourish our emotionals, you know, to make us feel better emotionally. We just grab food. It's it's also easier. It's the easiest thing, right? It's easier to, or we think it is anyway. Like you say, you're at work. Things aren't going well. You feel stressed out. So what do you do? Grab one of those donuts that they have, you know, that people have <laughs> brought in to eat during the day or you come home and you're rushing from one thing to the next. So you just start stuffing your face with food, which and uh, what happens to us when we do that? Well, of course, we're what three quarters of us are overweight and a, uh, three what a quarter of us are obese uh, as a country. And so it's not working, I guess, is, is well, what you're right. saying. Right. So yeah. Well, it's not working, and um, yeah, people that are really specifically eating to kind of feel better and soothe and or even numb, um, you know, what happens, and maybe there's a few moments of pleasure from the food, and then then what sets in is maybe just not feeling, feeling overfull or some guilt or shame. But so, yeah, so then backing up, what I see is that, there are, right, we're not nourishing ourselves in other ways during the day and during the week. And we're not really putting as much attention into all the different parts of ourselves and the ways that we could feel full and nourished and satisfied and excited about life and joyful and and making the kinds of contribution that we want to in the world. So all of these things can lead to you know, to lead to this over-focus on, well, this is, this is the easy go-to, this is the one good food, you know, that's, that's, as you were saying, the easiest thing usually to go to and the quickest. So backing it up, we're looking at, in the well-nourished approach and, you know, fulfilled, well-nourished living, what, what is, we do this whole assessment in the book. We have these eight bodies, we look at eight realms or eight bodies of nourishment that make us, you know, really make us uniquely human. Animals are, you know, we share some of these bodies with animals, the emotional bodies. Certainly we know that animals have emotions and those of us that are pet owners <laughs> really, really see that. But we have, as humans, we have all these really unique parts of ourselves. We have the creative part. We have the intellectual body. We, we have the spiritual body. We have... Um, you know, all these, are the in, let's see, I said the intellectual, we have, um, of course, the psycho, I call the psychological body, physical body, physical nourishment, all these different parts of ourselves that really make us uniquely human, and we each have our own, our own needs, our own recipes, so to speak, and these areas that that are delicious, that make us feel, you know, contribute to feeling fulfilled, nourished, resilient. Um, and when we're lacking in these areas, and, and that's a different, really looks different for each person, what that would look like, what is being well-nourished. Then we, we have so much more resilience, and food is just, food can find its right place in our lives. So as a source of, of nourishment and satisfaction and joy, but not, and also coming to eating it in the right amounts. So and this is example, the definition of, would you say, is this the definition of like mindful eating? Is that being aware and conscious of what we're eating and, and when we're eating and why we're eating? Um, I mean, that's 
that has to do with mindful eating rather than just stuffing our faces because we feel stressed out or uncomfortable or whatever. So we really have to, in order to be well-nourished, we have to be mindful about what we eat specifically. Is that it? Yeah. Well, exactly. That is that is really the core. The book starts out with that. Um, the mindful eating helps us really become, as you're saying, mindful and conscious of both the, we call it inner and outer wisdom, you know, of when are we truly hungry? You know, are we truly hungry? What is it that we're, we're really needing right now? And knowing our eating triggers. And if we are truly hungry... You know, what is it that that's really calling to me right now that would be nourishing and, and being present for eating whatever you choose to eat, engaging with the food with all your senses, tuning into the, the pleasure of the food. You know, so often we are, we're checked out. We're not, we're eating fast or we're really focused on conversation if we're eating with others. And we're, we're actually missing that whole experience of eating and <clears throat> the pleasure that we can get from it, the satisfaction, the fulfillment, and it's so easy to eat more if we're not tuned in as well to our to our fullness, to when we feel satisfied. So mindful eating is about paying attention, being mindful, you know, of our choices, of what we're eating, when we're eating, and paying attention to our inner experience as well, knowing when we're satisfied. And not just, you know, so many people are used to that next diet as dictating exactly what they're supposed to eat and how much and, and how, but not paying attention to themselves, to their own well, body. You, it's really so that's right the for mind, them. I just, because you also, you mentioned, and that, that's a great definition, obviously, of mindful eating, being aware of what we're eating, when we're eating, and how we're eating. But you also, you started to touch on nourishing the eight realms that make you uniquely human and uniquely you. I think that's what you talk about in the book. So mm-hmm. how does that fit into the mindful eating? What, what is, you know, in the, in the overall picture, how does that help us to, um, to well, be eat healthily and also to feed ourselves in a healthy way, not just food, but emotionally? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so how it helps us when, um, just as an example, that question, because I, I do work with a lot of people that are emotional and stress-related eaters, so when we, when we feel that urge to eat, and maybe it's an, just an eating trigger, like that donut in the, the staff room at work, or walking by the wonderful aroma coming out of the bakery, um, you know, there's this mindful, mindful check-in. You know, am I, you know, am I really hungry? What is it that I need right now? Checking in, noticing what's up. I like to say, what are you bringing to the table? What are your thoughts? What are your feelings that are up right now, particularly related to the food? How hungry are you really? And, and in this moment, you know, what do I truly need? We, we sometimes become aware that, yeah, we are, we're just really worked up about something and what we need is take a few breaths, calm down, maybe bring in some, I have a whole section in the book on inner nourishment and inner resources, nourishing from the inside out. So, and that goes across bodies, particularly the emotional body. So giving our that might be having skills and tools and how to nourish from the inside out when what we're needing is not food. 
emotional. So how do we do that specifically? Let's give an example, uh, like an example of doing that nourishing from the inside out. Let's say you come home from work, a very stressful day. I like to give examples. Um, Mm -hmm. It makes it more real, I think. And you come home and, you know, you just feel like, oh, I just want to unwind. I'm exhausted. You know, my boss is after me. I've got so much I have to do, uh, literally so much on my plate. And instead of let's say, running to the refrigerator and grabbing that piece of cake that, you know, that's waiting mm-hmm. for you or whatever, or the bag of potato chips or uh, what do you do instead? Right. So, well, that mindful check-in is really important because that helps break the automatic habit to go straight there. Um, so, pausing, taking a few breaths. And, you know, I, I work with people too on that, that remembering. Now, one of the definitions of mindfulness, you know, as um, one of the scholars that, that translated the word calls it um, remembering. It's presence, it's awareness, being, remembering. It's really remembering to remember. So, and to be aware. So little reminders are sometimes helpful. <laughs> so sometimes I invite people to put little little notes up or have a beautiful chime on your phone just to remind you to pause when you come home. What is it that you really need? So, for example, someone might become aware of the thought, well, I deserve this. I deserve to eat those cupcakes, all of them, <laughs> that are in the refrigerator that I bought for my kids. Uh, they're left over from my kids' event. Because I'm tired, I'm stressed. So, okay, mindful pause, a few breaths, becoming aware of that. How true is that really? What else, what do I really need right now? What else could really nourish me? So I invite people to, as we go through, the, and the book is so full of every chapter, all kinds of skills and tools and things that we can do to nourish these different bodies. Um, and I invite people to make their nourishment lists. And, and have and practice skills and tools to have them ready. So what is it that I need right now? And so it may, it's different for each person. Maybe it's just that mindful pause, a few deep breaths, taking a few stretches. Um, maybe it's going outside into your beautiful garden and just sitting in the sun for a few minutes or getting into your gardening. Or maybe it's calling a friend. Maybe it's journaling. Maybe it's doing some stretching. Maybe it's that you actually really are hungry, but these few moments of mindful pause, taking a few deeper breaths, coming back to more of a baseline, calming down, not being as stressed, being able to see more, more clearly, but maybe it's making a healthier choice of food just to really nourish yourself and then eating it mindfully, sitting down, enjoying it rather than standing at the refrigerator and eating the first thing that's there. And often when, you know, when we're tired, when we're tired, when we're stressed, we go for what kinds of foods, <laughs> the, the easiest, the, the most uh, high sugar, high carb, fat, salty foods, crunchy foods, these kind of foods. So this mindful check and this mindful pause helps to break that cycle. What do I truly need? What are other options that would nourish me? Now, here's another example. So uh, when you talk about maybe, that before you go on, because I think what sure. you're saying in the book is and when you do that and you, you, you're you aware of the other options, that you create new patterns. So after a while, as I understand it, if you keep doing that, instead of 
running home and grabbing the bag of potato chips or tacos or whatever, you actually get in and you create a new habit, a new pattern. And that begins to, I don't want to say take on a life of its own, but it then things begin to change in terms of how you interact with food. Yes, absolutely. I mean, new patterns in the moment and overall. So, for example, in, let's say, the creative nourishment, the creative body, um, maybe you're just really a very creative person and you've put aside that part of yourself you haven't had time to to used to do art or you wrote songs or maybe you your creativity manifests in another way um, in your life and there's a level of frustration because you're not doing that or tying into the worldly nourishment of the worldly body that's where we're really in touch when we're in touch with our our passion what we really uh purpose how we want to contribute to the world and say we're not doing that so there can be this underlying frustration in our lives which contributes overall to to those moments when we might eat instead of doing something that's nourishing for ourselves. So another really important premise is as we become aware of what is missing in these different bodies, is then making, um, seeing what's most important, because we can't make change all at once. So choosing the areas that are really calling to you, that you, that, that, um, and that's always the best way to go. What feels most energizing? Where do you feel most called in terms of wanting to make change? And then making some small steps small commitments, learning some tools. Um, you mentioned, you had a question earlier, emo- give us some examples of emotional nourishment. So, gosh, there's so many ways that we can work mindfully and really filling up from the inside. And one of them is cultivating these beautiful qualities of gratitude, appreciating beauty, savoring the moment, and self-compassion. And let's take each one of those fit. because those sound, I mean, those are sort of, I don't want to say general terms, but can we, okay, when we talk about gratitude, cultivating gratitude, what does that mean? Yeah, so what does that mean? So a great gratitude practice is, um, and many listeners might relate to this, so you wake up in the morning and maybe for a moment there's just that quiet and kind of spacious waking up. And then thoughts might come pouring in and maybe even a little bit of a feeling of, of stress or tension or, oh, I've got to do this today or I've got to get up. And, and the day kind of just starts. You get up and you've got the long list of things to do. In that moment, when you catch yourself doing that, you can take a pause, take a few breaths, let your mind go to what you're really grateful for in your life and really fill up that way, savor it with your attention, and, and then, then get up and start the day in a whole different way. And that might affect your eating, too, that morning. And later on, and this is a practice that you can do at any moment. And as simple as what is noticing those no- moments that are nourishing when positive things happen, we so quickly go on to the next, um, the next errand, the next human doing, the next, next thing we need to do than just taking in, you know, walking from the car to the office. Look at these beautiful flowers. They're feeling the sunshine or smiling and chatting with a coworker, being present for that, taking it in, being present for the moments of our lives. You know, present when we're having our, our breakfast. Now, I've been practicing mindful eating for many years now, and like 
So mindful eating practice, same with mindfulness practice, continues to grow, to deepen over time. And it's, it's a really wonderful practice. And so for me, kind of my edge right now is even more, even more joy from a simple eating a very simple snack or a meal. There's so much satisfaction and joy in that moment. And what about you? I mean, you mentioned you've been doing this for years now. Was there something mm-hmm. that obviously, I mean, some crisis that got you into this personally, yourself? I mean, so that you um, began eating, doing eating, well, obviously you're a coach, you're a therapist, but any, like your story, is there anything that actually got you into mindful eating, nourishing your whole self, nourishing your mind and body? You know, yeah, another great question. And, you know, my, my story is that, you know, I grew up, um, I grew up in California and in lots of nature around. And so I actually was really, I was really tuned in to nourishment. Nourishment from nature, that's another wonderful resource that we have. For a lot of my clients, I encourage them to go out in their gardens, to pause, get out into nature. Um, in our retreats, we spend some time doing this as well. Um, so, no, for me, uh, I was interested in food as medicine, food as nourishment, nature. I started meditating young. Um, my mother was meditating. She was a therapist. She was studying to be a therapist <laughs> when I was in my teen years. So there was an amazing library of books that I was just soaking up, <laughs> drinking up. So for me, I came from more of a full place and really wanting to bring this fullness to others. Um, when I was 17, and it's in my book, I had a very profound experience on a mountaintop and a backpack trip, just really, uh, just, uh, it's, you know, hard to put into words, but really getting the, the nourishment, the, the peace, the, the harmony that is present in nature, in ourselves, that that's always there that we can access through practices such as mindfulness, meditation, nourishing ourselves so that we, we feel whole and fulfilled. And we are really already whole. Um, so it's both inside and out, but these practices nourishing from the outside in really are help support our wholeness and tapping into that. Andrea, you um, talk about like you always, I mean, you sort of came from that kind of a background with your mother and where you mm -hmm, were and mm -hmm. your experience on the mountain and being out in nature. So what about those of us who live in big cities where you don't have that, you don't have access to that. You wake up in the morning and yes, you, uh, you know, I think that's a great idea what you talk about it, gratitude instead of, because I get up in the morning thinking uh, just what uh you described. I've got a list of things. I have to do this. I have to do that. I, you know, and then I have a moment of panic and what should I do first? Don't do that. Yes. But then let's say you're in New York City or, you know, mm-hmm. where I very often am, uh, then what do you do? I mean, you walk out on the street and it's a it's chaotic. Uh, not all of us live in the country or can have the same access to the outdoors as you've been talking about. <laughs> of so course. what do we what do? Yeah, what do you do? What do we do? Yeah. <laughs> so, what do we do? so, well, notice what is, what is nourishing? What, what is, you know, there's, there's, uh, I haven't been in New York for a while, <laughs> but uh, the, so I don't know. <laughs> Taking a deep breath, there might be exhaust or not. Is going to say, <laughs> notice the fresh air. <laughs> 
but the sunshine or the temperature or what, notice um, the smile of, of a child walking by or there's got to be, there is beauty. You know, so looking for what, there's, there are, you know, the trees that are in the box as you walk out, taking a moment, enjoying that, letting it nourish you, finding those moments. Um, and, yeah, and then get and, away. And then know, maybe the people. The but, yeah, I was going to say <laughs> go people. to the park with the people. I think you talk, I mean, you sort of, you obviously touched on that too. There are ways to connect to people. I mean, there are ways to connect to the guy in the corner who's selling the flowers or there are, you know, as you say, uh, you're buying your coffee and there's a, a child, you know, uh, standing beside you. There are all kinds of ways, yeah, to do that. That and, sense of yeah. connection. Here yeah. you all connect. are and opening your attention to feel, wow, here we all are going about our day, maybe connecting, smiling at people, feeling that bigger sense of connection. And then, Don't you, you know, think making, that we fight against that? I mean, we, we as a, and I'm saying we kind of generally as a, as a culture, we're just so tied up in knots, uh, I guess, then, and so intense. And so uh, you know, whether you live in the country or the city, you know, success and, and, and accomplishments and all of those kinds of things, uh, even with our kids in sports, uh, wanting them to succeed and you know, putting a lot of pressure. So you really have to, well, you have to read your book, but... Uh, you really have to, I guess, I guess mindful is the word. I mean, you really have to make an effort to do this. And then you do. And what helps, right, is intent. So I have five steps to mindful eating and living in my book. And the first is awareness, you know, cultivating mindful, not uh, compassionate, non-judgmental attention, non-reactive attention that we start to be able to, to come from more in our lives. Um, So, and then the second step is intention, and that's really helpful to really get clear on what is your caring intention for yourself and your life with your eating, with how you want to live your life. And coming back to that, it's like a really important arrow or a guidepost to come back to to help you then implement all the skills and tools that, you're, that you know and you're learning. Um, to to make these make these small shifts and it's a retraining we are retraining our patterns are uh, you know there's a whole brain science behind it too and we can use outer supports to help us as well as the inner nourishment so yeah and the the mindful eating practices in my book are drawn upon evidence based you know proven research programs i got into a research to research in 2009 in mindful eating and um learned in a, it was a really wonderful evidence based approach that helps really has been proven to so anybody that's out there that's a binge eater that's listening significantly reduces uh, binge eating, overeating, and over time, and I've seen this with many, many of my clients, just coming to a really balanced place with eating and learning to be present and bring in nourishment in other areas as we're talking about. So it takes time. It's the intention, getting clear on intentions, having the skills and tools, having the outer support as well as developing the inner resources. So outer support can be... I know, I bring in the example of the, the smartphone. There's <laughs> a little ding to remember 
to bring in a practice or to pause. And social support is so important. Having a check-in buddy. And that is so, um, uh, you know, we have reached the end of our half hour. I, I, I could, uh, I, and I want to make sure that people, because are going to continue with this and have a website that they can go to, because I know you not only, uh, it's not only your book where, uh, you know, what we've been talking about obviously is in your book and much more, but that you also do training and you do, uh, you have other programs. So the name of the book is well-nourished, mindful practices to heal your relationship with food, feed your whole self, and end overeating. Andrea Lieberstein, and could you give us uh, a website, too, that we can go to? Sure. The website is yourwellnourishedlife.com, yourwellnourishedlife.com, and on there you can find the different retreats, coaching programs, online programs, all the different things that, that I offer. I just finished our, our first five-day well-nourished retreat. It was amazing. And just if you like that kind of learning, a way to go very, a deep dive into really making new habits, starting to make new habits to take home. And then we have longer programs. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots of good information, obviously, and also lots more to talk about. But um, yeah, Andrea's book, uh, Well Nourished. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, I'm Thank Catherine you Zox. so much, Catherine. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Aliens with Gas, we are the Extraterrestrial Rock Show, airing every Saturday afternoon on the VoiceAmerica.com Variety Channel. <laughs> Whatever happens out and about, it kind of dictates our conversation. For sure. And we like to tie in a little bit of the past and obviously keep it real current. And real current was a couple nights ago right here in Phoenix, a phenomenon happened. On Thursday night. Phenomenon. 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 All right, never mind. <laughs> That's every Saturday right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me is, joining me today is psychologist and social worker Nancy Van Dyken, author of Everyday Narcissism, Yours, Mine, and Ours. Narcissism in all forms is a belief that the world revolves around us and that what happens in the world happens because of us. Psychologist and clinical social worker Nancy Van Dyken argues that most of us live with a form of narcissism so deeply embedded that we don't even know we have it. She specializes in counseling individuals with depression and anxiety and has spent over 30 years helping people heal relationships of all kinds, including relationships with themselves. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Nancy. Thank you for having me, Catherine. Everyday narcissism. Well, you know I'm a social worker, so I think in the beginning we have to kind of clarify the difference between everyday narcissism and clinical narcissism, which has to do with diagnosing uh, patients or clients who may suffer from the disorder. We we do call it a disorder. So what is the difference between clinical narcissism and what we're going to be talking about today, everyday narcissism? Um, well, everyday narcissism is a low-grade version, a garden-variety form of narcissism, which I believe most of us struggle with, and they're based on five core beliefs or myths or lies that we live by. The narcissistic personality disorder is not what everyday narcissism uh, It's the difference between someone who struggles with major depression perhaps ends up being hospitalized or on medications frequently or throughout their life. And those of us who periodically claim, gee, I've been depressed for about the last week, or boy, I'm really down, but it doesn't lock into a full diagnosis. And that's the same thing between narcissistic personality disorder and everyday narcissism. Okay. So let's, all right, now let's start with everyday narcissism examples okay. of it. What, okay. What does that mean for us? Well, everyday narcissism uh, is a set of core beliefs that were first taught well under the age of five that drive our behaviors, thoughts, and and feelings for the rest of our lives. These are lies or myths. They're reinforced everywhere, teachers, schools, parents, churches, synagogues. It's reinforced everywhere, and they create a great deal of hardship and heartache uh, for people like you and me and and the listeners. Um, and so it's based on five core beliefs that we think are true, we are taught are true, but simply are not. Um, those five myths are, the first one is we are responsible for and have the power to control how other people feel and behave. So one example of that might be the four-year-old who just had a fight with her grandma, and um, the family tradition is when people leave the house, people give a hug and a kiss goodbye. And uh, the five-year-old or four-year-old doesn't want to go give grandma a hug and a kiss goodbye because she's mad at her. And mom says, uh, Nancy, go give grandma a kiss goodbye now. And Nancy says, I don't want to. I'm mad at her. Now go give grandma a kiss goodbye or she'll feel bad. Okay, so that's a very young lesson 
that the five-year-old is supposed to take care of grandma's feelings, that the five-year-old has the power to regulate grandma's feelings. That's a real role reversal, and no one cares about how the five-year-old feels, and that's very wounding because you hear over and over that you're supposed to take care of all these people and what's going on for you doesn't matter. So what would you say, Nancy, that what would you say instead of saying that, go kiss grandma because she's going to feel bad, or if you don't kiss her? So what do you say? Because Nancy doesn't want to kiss grandma because they had a fight. So as the mother or the, mm-hmm. um, yeah, what would you say to Nancy instead? I would give Nancy permission to say, I would say, um, Nancy, would you like to go give grandma a kiss or a hug goodbye? And if Nancy says no, I would say, that's okay. Because what Nancy feels and wants is okay. That does matter. What, what we know is, um, what, what we know uh, is that we're very much trained to take care of everybody else's feelings and ignore our own. So we want to train our children that our feelings matter uh, uh, the child feelings matters as much as the adults. For instance, I had a, a man come in here just yesterday into my office, and I, he was struggling some with his relationship with his daughter, who is uh, seven. And he re- read the first few chapters of my book, and the daughter came in and was laying on the bed with him, and she was crying. And he said normally what he would tell her is, now don't cry, it's going to be okay, we'll figure out a solution to the problem with your mother. Which is pretty typical. Pretty typical. Yeah. So what he said instead was, it looks like you're really hurting, honey. Why don't you tell me what's going on and see if I can be of help? He said the result was phenomenal. He said, instead of asking her to take care of me by not crying, because I don't like it when my little girl cries. Of course, we don't like to see our children hurting. He said, when I gave her permission to be who she is, she just opened up what was going on for her. She let me hug her. And then we found a solution, something that might help her. So um, when he asked her to stop crying, he was asking her to take care of him instead of him taking care of her. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense because what you're doing is acknowledging and validating her feelings, his daughter's feelings, and and that's what. And once you do that, then that gives obviously um, that gives her permission to to talk about her feelings and what's bothering her. Okay, got it. That's 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 good stuff to do. All right. So what's the next so, one? What? Do, yeah. So I just say many of us do this because it was done to us. And so we're not even conscious of what we're doing with our children. Um, It's like the man who, again, read the first part of my book on the myths, and he's a teacher, and he came in and he said, Nancy, I saw it in my school. I said, what happened? Well, a fifth grader came in and he didn't have his math done. And the teacher turned to him and said, I'm so disappointed in you. In other words, that child has the power to disappoint the teacher. Uh, that child's job is not to disappoint the teacher. So what my client turned and said later to the child was, I'm sorry you don't have your homework done because in math, when you don't get your homework done daily, 
uh, you're going to get behind, and I'm concerned about that. So can you hear the difference between those two? Absolutely. Uh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So then the second lie that we're taught is, well, if I'm busy taking care of your feelings, putting myself aside and taking care of your feelings, the second myth is other people are responsible for and have the power to control the way we feel and behave. So in other words, if I'm taking care of you, you're supposed to take care of me. And if you don't, I'm going to be pretty annoyed. That's your job. And of course, those first two lies create a lot of problems in relationships, and people don't even know they're engaging in it. And this comes from, so you're talking about in relationship as you get to be, when you're an adult, and you're trying, and you're establishing relationships. Well, no, it's also true in childhood, I think, but it happens certainly in adult. It carries through, yeah. Yeah, carries through. The third lie that we're taught is the needs and wants of other people are more important than our own. So in the case with grandma, her needs were more important than the five-year-old. Um, I know that for many people, if the five-year-old didn't go kiss grandma goodbye, then mother would be upset because she'd be embarrassed that her daughter wasn't doing the family routine. So now the five-year-old's also responsible for how mother feels. And in some cases, if mother is upset, then dad is upset. So the five-year-old is now responsible for how those three adults feel, and it's her job to make sure they're happy. None of this is done consciously. It's not done maliciously. It's just how we're raised. Um, the, The fourth lie that we're taught is following the rules is also more important than addressing our own needs and feelings. Give us an example. So um, a rule of that might be um, uh, oh, oh, let's see. A common rule uh, that people engage in is that they're always supposed to say yes and be helpful. Well, sometimes if I'm helpful, um, it harms me. So if you and I are working together and you say to me, uh, Nancy, can you help me um, uh, work on file X? I'm really far behind. Now, the social world is you're supposed to be helpful. You're supposed to extend yourself. You're supposed to be good to all these people. And so you say yes, but you realize that you are behind already. And to take on this other person's request puts a lot more stress and anxiety on yourself. But like in myth three, my needs don't matter, just the other person. And social rule is you're supposed to be helpful and kind to everyone, even at the expense of yourself. I think, Nancy, that example applies particularly, and I've had several uh, authors on the show who have written books about this, but women really, I think, get sort of sucked into that more easily than men. And I, I, you know, of saying yes, and I'll be a good person, and even though it puts your work in jeopardy, the example you gave, you know, you, you haven't done any of, mm-hmm. you haven't accomplished what you're supposed to be doing and yet you're trying to help somebody else and maybe afraid to say, I can't do this or, you know, I can't do this today or, you know, create, you know, putting some limits or on, on uh, what you're able to do that we as women, as caretakers, we tend to, I think, get sort of hooked into those kinds of situations more often than not? I agree with that. Um, women are very uh, relationship-focused, and so that, that makes that even trickier, trickier. 
it also confronts our need to belong. Freud said our basic drive in life was sex, and Adler in about 1918 broke away and said, no, I think our basic drive in life is to belong, to fit in, to be loved. And um, so if I say no to you, um, you might get hurt. You might get angry, and those things might make you go away. And so it gets really scary if it threatens if we have a rule in us that says I don't have a right to say no, then I threaten my basic desire to belong. But as I uh, I said in uh, one interview, uh, he said, won't people go away? Absolutely. Some people will go away. The people that want you to take care of them all the time will go away. But your true friends will want that kind of honesty. Your true friends will want you to take care of yourself. So those that stick around will be your true friends where you can have real honest communication, and that's what real intimacy is about, honesty in the communication. The, the last rule is unless we follow all these lives, we are not lovable as we are. We can only become lovable through what we do and what we say. And so if we don't do these things, we have this tremendous fear of not being likable, not being lovable, being alone in the world. They're very powerful myths that we are taught, and we live by them. And by the time we're in seventh grade, we're now saying them to ourselves. Well, you better invite so-and-so to the party or he'll feel bad. Well, you better help her out if you don't want to because she doesn't have any friends or whatever. We start we start feeding it to ourselves and we do it well into adulthood. I have people in their 70s telling me how these myths are still impacting their lives. And they're, they're afraid to take care of themselves because they won't be seen as kind and lovable and likable. So as healthy people, emotionally healthy people, we have to break the life cycle or break this kind of, uh, the life cycle of this, this kind of, be- of each one of these five different kinds of behaviors, right? And you have to really start in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what people find is um, they are less anxious um, in that level of honesty. And I, and I always say that when we're practicing changing these uh, patterns, these ways of living, we always want to do it with kindness and graciousness. So I think honesty is really important. Uh, but honesty can be used to be cruel. The nice thing is that these wounds, wounds are created through these myths. I call it hazy trauma. When over and over and over, your needs don't matter. When over and over, everybody else and what they need comes first. It's like a little paper cut. And you're just a little thing. You know, you're three, you're two, you're four, you're five. And it's a little paper cut. No, your need doesn't matter. Go give grandma a kiss goodbye. Uh, no, your need doesn't matter. You need to do whatever. One paper cut after another paper cut. We all know how much paper cuts hurt. But you get enough of those paper cuts, you end up with quite a good wound. And so my book is about understanding our woundedness and then Throughout the book, I give tools on how to heal these wounds so they don't keep running our lives, so we don't keep living in fear and anxiety that people will find out that we're really not very lovable. All right, let's, and, uh, 
Go ahead. Well, yeah, I'm going to stop you there because let's talk about some of those. Let's, what are, you yeah. know, how do we heal these? How specifically do we heal these wounds? Um, one of the things you do talk about in the book I wanted to ask you about was you say our four uh, biggest distractors, anger, fear, attempt, we talk about attempting to please others, people, yeah. victim energy. What's that? Okay, well, distractors are things that we do to avoid feeling. And if we don't know how we're feeling, we can't take care of it. We have to, one of the tools is you have to learn to list your feelings on a daily basis. There's a list of feelings in the back of the book. And I I recommend people get a notebook as they read this book. And you list your feelings. What did it feel like to be me at work? What did it feel like to be me in relationship to my spouse or my children? What did it feel like to be me in the world? Because some people will just say, well, I had a hard day. That's similar to going to the doctor and saying, I feel sick. Well, the doctor's not going to prescribe anything or do anything if you just say, I feel sick. He wants to know if you're going to throw up, if you've been running a fever, uh, if you've been having chest pains. He wants to know what those symptoms are, and then he starts evaluating how to treat you. We have to know how we're feeling. So if we know we're feeling lonely, we need to learn to pick up the phone and call a friend and say, I'm feeling lonely. What are you doing today? The minute you tell somebody you feel lonely, your loneliness goes away because you're no longer alone. So one of the tools is that you list your feelings. But many of us have never learned how to take care of our feelings, so we do things to distract ourselves. Anger is a very big distractor. Many people, when they get hurt, they get angry. When they get sad, they get angry. When they get embarrassed, they get angry. So the anger is the second emotion. It's not really what's going on. Um, It's like going to the doctor with a cough, and the doctor says, oh, I'll give you a cough suppressant, but never goes to find out that the person has pneumonia or emphysema or asthma or what might be causing the cough. Naming the feelings under the anger then begins to let us know, what can I do to take care of that feeling? Another distractor um, is fear. It just totally disconnects us from our heart because fear brings us to our head. We start writing a story about what we're afraid of, about what's going to happen, and, and we get into this whole fear, and we just totally disconnect from our heart. Um, Belonging is another distractor because we get so focused on what I have to do to belong that I'm ignoring how tired I am or how sick I am. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to belong. And so I'm going to ignore being sick. I'm going to do what I have to do to ensure that you like me. Now, being a victim is probably the most common thing that I deal with. Being a victim is feeling powerless. Um, No, I just lost it. Well, Uh being a victim, feeling powerless, I I understand that. And And also, I think, and have no choices. I mean, I I, because the minute you said that, I I I can think of so many people um, that recently who I have connections with who that feeling is that I don't have choices and I just had a huge discussion with someone about that Um, and that is that victim mentality of course you have choices Um, everyone has choices but um, 
there is that kind of I don't have a choice. I, I think that, and which it's is paralyzing, per- obviously. It's pervasive in our culture. It is. You'll see it in a restaurant. Somebody feels like a victim. The server isn't coming fast enough. Or on the highway because someone pulled in front of us and that was our 10 feet of highway. Um, Victim energy is everywhere in our culture. So we have a lot of permission to go into victim, go into poor me, and then never really deal with the feelings that are going on. We blame when we're in victim. Um, I had a client, as I was discussing his victimhood, he's pretty good at it, I told him. (laughs) And and I said... um, he, he said to me, well, Nancy, my, my friends support me in my victimhood. Exactly. They'll say, oh, you don't need to put up with that. That isn't a nice way your wife treats you. I can't believe she talks to you like that. Instead of saying, that sounds really hard, John. What have you decided to do about it? Because most of us as adults are not victims. Now, we're going to see victims down in Texas and Louisiana uh, because they didn't have a choice about Harvey coming in. Some people couldn't afford to leave town. Uh, They didn't have the money or the resources or they were medically, so they can be victimized. But most of us, as we live in our daily life, we are not victims. We have choices. We may not like our choices, but as long as you have a choice, as long as you have a choice, you're not a victim. Children who are, who are abused don't have a choice about whether they're going to get abused or not. They don't have any power to stop it. Uh, so an example is I was working in a, for a company, uh, a large HMO, and as, as time, it started out as an ideal situation, and as time passed, it became just horrific uh, because the caring for the clients and the caring for the clinicians just left, and it was all about bottom line. And I was building up my private practice, and I kept going into victim, and I'd say, no, Nancy, you're not a victim. You're choosing to stay until your private practice builds up. You could quit. You could go work at the SA station. You could sell your house. You could take your daughter out of private school. I don't want to make those choices. So I'm choosing to stay until I'm able to leave and provide the way I need to. Now, it's a hard choice, but I have a choice. Does that make and I sense? think that's a that's a perfect example. I mean, well, and the, it's getting back to and we only have a couple minutes left, so I want yeah, to make sure yeah. that people know where yeah. they can buy the book and and mm-hmm. get online for more information. But uh, that's a great example, and you have to be aware though that the whole concept of awareness, as you're saying, and that you do have choices. Some of them, you many of which you may know, and some people have more limited choices than others. But it's not that you right. have no choice at all. Right. Um, the book, Everyday Narcissism, Yours, Mine, and Ours, Nancy Van Dyken, uh, who's a social worker, you can buy online bookstores everywhere? Or where is the book uh, available? Yes. Um, they, it will be coming out on the 12th, although you can order it from Central Recovery Press today. Um, but it will be at Barnes & Nobles, and you can order it on Amazon. Um, you can go to my website and order it from me at nancyvandyken.com or healingrelationships.com. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, oh, you I bet, would, Catherine. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, lots more to talk about, but we have to go out and get the book and read the book. Um, I'm I just Z- want to say, I yeah. just want to say, all this can be healed, and the book is full of tools to and how it. to make your life what you want. 
Okay. Everyday narcissism. Uh, thanks so much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.